Right, right here at the beginning, uh, before we jump into the passage this morning in Romans 9, I want to talk to our young ones. If I could have your attention, I'm going to tell you what the passage is going to be about. I'm going to tell you what the sermon is going to be about. Uh, this is what the apostle says, uh, young ones, in, in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the word of God has not failed. That is a really big deal. Because Paul has been telling us over and over and over about Jesus saving us, about how he, he lived for us and he died for us for our sins, and he's been, he's been raised from the dead to rule over us now. And now he's going to answer this question. And this is a really important question. And young ones, some of you kids have asked me this question. Okay, like that's awesome what Jesus did. But what if, what if God decides to stop loving us? Like, could God ever stop, could he ever decide to stop loving me? That's a really good question. Paul has just said that nothing, we just came out of chapter 8 where he said nothing can separate us from the love of God. And now Paul reminds us that God's word, he has said that God's word does not fail. Uh, this is a true story about a little first grade boy in Vermont. It's a story from one of my friends in Vermont. There's a story about a, a little boy named Henry. Henry goes up to his dad, first grade, really, really, you know, he's got these, all these big, deep questions for his dad, and he asks his dad, he says, hey, dad, is anything permanent? Like, does anything last forever? And his dad said, y'all, his dad said, no, son. Like, nothing in life is permanent. Nothing lasts forever. And Henry was quiet for a little bit. And then Henry looked at his dad and said, hmm, that's not right, Dad. Sharpies are. And love. Like, he really said that to his dad. And Henry is really right. Like, yeah, love is permanent, especially God's love. That is what the Apostle Paul is telling us. God's love, young ones, hear me. God's love for you, it is permanent. It is forever that has been guaranteed to us. God has told us how he has already saved you. Jesus has already come, and he has lived for you, and he has died for you, and he has been raised for you. He has already beaten your death. He has already beaten your sin, and he did it all out of grace for you. He did it all out of love for you. Think about this. He's already done the hard thing. Do you think he's going to stop loving you now? He knows you sin. That's why he came. It was for your sin. He is never going to give up on you. He is never going to stop loving you. Your salvation can never be taken away. That is the awesome truth of the gospel. That is what Paul is going to tell us today in our passage, in our sermon. Uh, this is Rome, we're in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. We just got to here we go. Romans 9 to 11. Uh, some call it this parenthesis, or is it a parenthesis? A parenthesis, it's like this in-between thing, like Paul is, uh, he's kind of gone off on a tangent here, where uh, he's given us this very, very orderly explanation, like awesome, beautiful explanation of the gospel uh, in the first half of Romans, and now all of a sudden he's going off on this tangent, like this side note on Israel. Let me just talk to you all for a little bit about Israel. That's not right. This flows, what he is saying here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 it flows perfectly from all that he has just been saying about the gospel. With that, please stand for the reading of God's Word.
Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. There is, there is a very distinct shift from what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8 to what he starts talking about in chapter 9. And it's, it's not a small thing. Like, it's not a small thing that there's this, yeah, there's this shift. This is God's Word. So as you're reading it, it, it shouldn't be the same, like, I don't know what he's talking about. He's just talking about this, now he's talking about this, whatever, okay. Like, it should, it should make sense, and it should flow from one verse to the next, from one passage to the next. And it does. There is this distinct, distinct shift and distinct shift in subject matter and tone from chapter 8, the glory of what he's been singing uh, to anguish in chapter that, that He has been singing and praising our adoption as God's children and that that can never change. God's love for us is permanent. It's eternal. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He goes from that, that's how he ended chapter 8, to chapter 9, talking about Paul's anguish over Israel. Because here is the problem. It's like the elephant in the room. What about Israel? If nothing can separate us from God's love, then why is God turning away from Israel as his nation? Paul has been saying everywhere he goes, the Sinai covenant God made with Israel through Moses, that is now the Old Covenant. So, Jerusalem, significance of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, you know, the temple, the, the sacrifices, it's all done. It's all been fulfilled. And now God has made a new covenant with his people. So, the objection is just like all the assurances of salvation that Paul has been so enthusiastically talking about. All the good promises of eternal life. It's, it's all been accomplished. Just believe it. Just believe in Jesus and you've got it. All of that can be brushed away with one objection. Uh, oh, oh yeah, okay. What about Israel? If you're in Rome sharing the gospel with a Jew and you talk about the everlasting love of God that's forever and it's certain, the Jew could come back at you and say, oh yeah, what about Israel? Because Israel used to be God's favored people. And now your Apostle Paul says that's no longer true. So Paul spends three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, answering that question. This is where he starts. We are just starting to answer that question. This is where he starts. Paul starts to answer the question 
by talking about his love for his fellow Jews because he knows his reputation at this point. His reputation at this point is that he is a traitor to his own people. So he's emphatic right here at the beginning. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience is clear before God. He says it three times, three different ways. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience is clear before God. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my Israelites, for my people. Because, he says, Israel was in a special relationship with God. They were his people. Verse 4, to the Israelites belong the adoption. That, that language takes us back to Exodus, where Israel is adopted by God out of Egypt as his family. God doesn't say that about any other nation. His people to be his son. He says, to the Israelites belong the glory. You know, you think of the glory. Where did the Israelites have, like, the glory of God? Like, think the tabernacle. Think the temple. Where, where the glory of God filled uh, these places with his presence on earth. To the Israelites belong the covenants, the giving of the law. I mean, they were made God's kingdom on earth. They were given a land. They were made his theocratic nation, people. They were given kings. And they were given, for the first time in the history of the world, in the history of redemption, they were given the written word of God. Written special revelation. To the Israelites belongs the worship. Think the temple, the feasts, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system. Verse 5, to them belong the, uh, or it says also the, the promises, promises of prosperity, promises of long life in the land. Then verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. They have an ancestry. They have a history. They are the, Israel isn't making this up. They are the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, 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 their God is not, it's not the same thing. Their God, Yahweh, is not the God of the Moabites. It's not the God of the Canaanites. They worship the one true God, Yahweh, who revealed himself to them. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The greatest blessing is that the Messiah, the Christ himself, came from them. The Savior was a Jew, born into the world through the Israelite people. So the objection so what's the point of it all, Paul? So, so what about all of those blessings? What about Israel now? If Israel has fallen forever, then hasn't God failed? No, Paul says, verse 6, but it is not as though the Word of God failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He goes on to say that there are two Israels as it were. There is Israel of the flesh and Israel of the Spirit. So think of a big circle, and like that's the nation of Israel. All those who are physically descended, you know, that are of the nation of Israel, Israelites. And within that circle, there's a smaller circle. And this is spiritual Israel. Physical Israel and then spiritual Israel. Those who truly believe in the faith of Israel. And from here, for three chapters, Paul is going to launch into a defense of how God's promises have not failed, but they've been fulfilled. How the nation Israel has fallen, but true Israel has come into fullness. 
But here, just for this morning, I want us to see Paul's anguish because he knows the blessings that God has bestowed upon Israel. But if you're in Israel, if you're in Israel and you don't believe what these blessings are all about, then you really do not know the God who has bestowed them. So, he says, not all Israel is of Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Paul affirms that the nation of Israel was given all of these blessings and benefits of knowing God, but that does not necessarily mean they actually knew God. There's, uh, there's this show. It's called the Antique Roadshow. Uh, antique appraisers travel around the world to appraise antiques brought in by locals. In one episode, uh, an older gentleman, he brings in this blanket. And, and you see this blanket, very, very plain blanket, old blanket, striped blanket, looks like an old bed blanket. It's just wool. And it's got, it's got these white, blue, and black stripes. That's it. it, it, it it's very, very plain. And, and the appraiser sees it, and you can see it in his face. The appraiser sees it, and he almost passes out. Uh, and he asks the old, old gentleman where he got it, and the old man kind of goes through, you know, uh, a little story about how it got passed down for a few generations, uh, and he remembers, he remembers he, he had to live with his grandparents growing up, and, and that's where this, he first saw this blanket just on the side of the bed, and on, you know, cold winter nights, every now and then he'd, you know, pull this old wool blanket over him too, um, but uh, uh, so the, the, man, the man says, the appraiser says, he's trying to keep calm. He said, Ted, did you notice when you brought this in, I stopped breathing? I'm still having a hard time breathing. And Ted said, yes, and I'm surprised because I, I didn't think much about it. And the appraiser said, it's the first type of chief's blanket made. It's called a Ute first phase wearing blanket. It's Navajo made. They were made for Ute chiefs. Very valuable at the time. This is Navajo weaving in its purest form. And then he just goes off on, on just the amazingness of this blanket. And he says, it's an extraordinary piece of art. It's extremely rare. It's the most important thing that's coming to the roadshow that I have ever seen. Do you have any sense of its worth? And Ted says no. And Ted, you know, we learn that Ted does not have a lot of money. And he says that he was, you know, when he was asked that question, he's sitting there and he's thinking, he's hoping, he, maybe he's going to tell me like $3,000, maybe, maybe it's $5,000. And the appraiser tells him, it is worth $500,000. And Ted almost faints. And he starts to cry. Oh my God, I had no idea. It's been laying on the back of a chair my parents were poor, my grandparents were poor farmers. There was no, he's saying this through tears, there was no wealth, no wealth in the family at all. And the appraiser looks at him and says, this is a national treasure. It's this thing uh, of proximity to treasure does not mean you treasure the thing for what it is. There's this show called The Office that some, some consider a national treasure. Um, <laughs> And this week, this week, there's this viral video going around of Rain Wilson, who's an actor on the show. He played Dwight Schrute, and Rain Wilson is on this plane, and he's taking a video of himself and of the guy who's sitting directly across from him and what he's watching. He's watching The Office, 
and Dwight is on the screen. And the guy watching it, he's sitting there, he's enjoying it, he's enthralled, he's laughing. He has no idea the real Dwight is sitting right next to him. And the, the, the video is entitled, When the Person Sitting Next to You Has No Idea Who You Are. It, it is this thing of, like, yes, the, and this is so much more serious, the nation of Israel was in a special relationship with God. But the nation's relationship with God, uh, it was based on works. And what is shown up is the nation really doesn't get what they have with God. They really don't get what this is all about. This nation's relationship with God is based on works. They've got to be, as a nation, they've got to be God's kingdom. Uh, they've got to be God's kingdom nation on earth, and, and they'll get to be a nation, and they'll get to keep the land of Canaan. They'll get to be God's theocratic nation on earth if they obey God, if they stick with God, if they obey the commandments. And not even perfectly. It's not even perfectly. It's just you got to look different than the surrounding pagan nations. But they keep forfeiting all of these blessings, all of these benefits by turning again and again to idolatry. The kings are turning the people again and again and again to idolatry. And they look more and more and more like the surrounding pagan nations. And God over and over forgives them. He keeps, he, you know, he continues to be merciful with them. Uh, even, when, even after he sends them into exile, he brings them back again out of grace because God is trying to tell the world something through Israel. He, God forgives them over and over in order to maintain this situation of this Mosaic covenant over the nation of Israel until the true Israelite comes. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew born under the Mosaic law. That, so when Jesus is born, that's what's in force when he's born as a Jew in Bethlehem. And it's the old Mosaic Covenant law that provides the context for what Jesus was really going to do. One of, this is what he's getting at, one of the great purposes of the kingdom of Israel was to provide the context. It was to set the stage for the world for what Jesus came to do. Jesus was born under the law as a Jew, come to fulfill the law. Now, we've, we've said this before. Remember, like back in, back in chapter 5, Paul has said that Jesus came as a second Adam. He came as a second Adam to do what Adam had failed to do. Uh, but it, it's as if, it, it, you know, with Israel, the point is it's as if that Adam narrative, it happened so long ago, and it happened with so few witnesses. With the nation of Israel, God is reenacting the Adam narrative on the grand stage of world history in order to set the context, again, for the incarnation, the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus comes, the faithful Israelite, the true Israelite, and he obeys the Mosaic law perfectly. And he did that to save us. But it's, it's not the Mosaic law that, that saves us, but the old Mosaic law it provides the context to understand what Jesus really did do. Paul already told us in Romans 5 that God the Father makes a covenant of works with God the Son to come and do the work as a man that Adam failed to do. To fulfill all righteousness. To live a life of perfect righteousness. And 
not to do, Adam wasn't supposed to do this, but now Jesus has to do this because of what Adam did, and he has to also pay the penalty for Adam's sin and for our sin. And Jesus' penalty, you know, that you see this on the grand stage of history working out with Israel, they're exiled from the land because of their sin. Jesus' penalty is not exile from the land of Canaan, it is exile, it is ultimate curse, exile from God's presence. Jesus perfectly keeps the law of the eternal covenant between him and the Father, and his reward isn't the kingdom of Canaan. It's not that. It's what that pointed to. Jesus' reward is the eternal kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. And he didn't just do it for himself. He did it for his people. And so Paul says, God's word has not failed and, Paul, and, and he's going to unpack this for the next few chapters. This is where we're going. And Paul, in his anguish over his brothers and over his sisters who fail to see God's word fulfilled in Jesus, it's, it's overflowing here. And here's the so what for us. Like, think of Paul's compassion toward those who hate him. Think of Paul's compassion toward his enemies. And we, we, you've heard me say this before. It is right to say you ha- the church has enemies. Of course you have enemies. There's nothing wrong with that. It, but how are you going to treat your enemies? We have enemies, but we are called to love our enemies. I mean, the Gentiles were Paul's enemies, and the Jews are now Paul's enemies. The Gentile leaders and peoples and the Jewish leaders and peoples, they all tried to kill Paul wherever he went. I mean, they had him arrested. They had him tortured. They stoned him. They beat him. They ran him out of towns. And they slandered his reputation. They made it unsafe for Paul to go anywhere. And what is Paul's reaction to all of them? Compassion. Love. Grace. He longed so much for their salvation, he risked his safety. He risked his life to continue to share the gospel with them that they might come to know their Messiah and live forever. And the question for us is, how do we talk about our enemies? You have enemies, right? How do we talk about them? The ones that we are supposed to love. Those who directly oppose the gospel. Think for just a minute, like, what are those groups of people in your own mind? What are those groups of people or that one group of people that you have in mind that you think about that is the biggest threat to the church? Who's the biggest threat to the church today? Are you waiting for their judgment or are you praying for their salvation? Are you hoping for their comeuppance or are you hoping for their repentance? Are you holding up a hand that says, just stop talking to me? Or are you holding out the gospel of grace that says that there is love and there is grace and there is comfort for you in Jesus and it's for you if you want it? Even if they long to kill us, will we long for them to live forever? There's this movie. Uh, it's called The Last of the Mohicans, 1992 epic film uh, about the 1757 French and Indian Wars. Uh, in the film, the uh, lead is Cora Monroe. She's played by Madeline Stowe. Uh, there's a, uh, a uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, Daniel Day-Lewis, who plays Hawkeye. 
And then there's this uh, British officer, Duncan Hayward. Uh, and, and they've been captured. So, so towards the end of the film, they've been captured by the Huron Indians. Uh, both Cora and the British officer, they've been captured. And Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Hawkeye, he arrives to save them, and he surrenders himself uh, to try to save them. Uh, and this is, again, this is at the end of the movie. So in addition to, like, the French and Indian War that's going on, there's also these, you know, personal rivalries and feuds going on. So the, the sachem of the Huron tribe, the, the chief, he decides that Duncan, the British officer, and, and Hawkeye, this adopted son of this Mohican tribe, uh, they, he, he looks at them and he says, you guys can go in peace. Y'all go in peace, but Cora is condemned to be burned alive. And as they're taking her away, Hawkeye looks quickly at Duncan and he says, trade him, trade him. And then he looks at the sachem and he begs me for her. And he looks at Duncan again and he says, tell him. Because none of, none of them speak Huron, but Duncan can speak French and the Huron chief can speak French. So he's, he's telling him to translate all this. Uh, and so there's a pause. And, and so Duncan's translating, you know, and, and there's this pause and, uh, and, and like they're going to stop. And then, and then, you know, they keep going. They keep taking Cora away. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Cora just starts yelling, I am... I am the long rifle. My death is a great honor to the Huron. Take me. And Hawkeye, he looks at Duncan. He looks at the officer and he says, did you tell him? And Duncan looks at Cora and then he looks at Hawkeye and he says, yes. And they all look at the sachem. They all look at the chief. And he nods and he approves. So the warriors come back and Cora starts weeping. Uh, and she's looking at Haw Hawkeye, weeping for Hawkeye. And Hawkeye starts preparing himself, you know, to say goodbye. But then they give Cora to Hawkeye, and they walk past them. And they take Duncan. Because what Duncan had told the chief was, take me, a British officer, me for her. And if you've seen the movie, you know that it was Duncan who first loved Cora who first asked Cora to marry him. And while Cora is considering the proposal, she meets and she falls in love with Hawkeye. And she chooses him over Duncan, and Duncan knows this. And this whole movie, there's been this feud between them, and this whole movie up till now, you don't like Duncan. He's not the hero. You think he's one of the enemies. And as they drag Duncan away, Hawkeye is yelling at him, I said, take me, take me. And Duncan yells back, my compliments, sir. Take her and get out. It's Duncan, the one everyone hates, who will take the place of the one he loves. It's Duncan who dies in the fire, arms bound, stretched out as if crucified on a cross to save the one he loves, to save the one who does not love him back. That's grace. That's one dying for his enemies. Paul cries out, if it were possible, I would be accursed for my Jewish people whom I love, even though they don't love me. Moses, the first Israelite leader, said the same thing to God once. But Moses was not fit to die in the place of sinners because he is a sinner. Paul knows he is not fit to die in the place of sinners because he is a sinner. But Jesus comes. The one who is perfect, who is rejected and hated by both Jews and Gentiles, hated by the ones he came to save. And he looks at God and he says, take me, me for them. 
loved ones, that that gospel uh, of love and grace would so fill our hearts, we would realize we're the them. We're the ones he died for. It's all by grace. And that we would look at those that we call our enemies and we would believe that this is for them too. And we would hold it out to them that they too would become those for whom he died. That they too would believe uh, that we would go out holding this out, holding out this grace that those who presently do not believe, that they might believe. This is all of love. It is all of grace. It is for anybody who wants it. Please pray with me. Father, we come and uh, we praise you for your love. Lord, we praise you for this favor that you have bestowed upon us that we have demerited uh, with all of our sin. Father, we pray that we would hold on to it as the most precious gift, the gift of your Son. Father, we pray that we would, we would see our need of Him today. Father, that we would hold out that grace to one another here. E- even in all of our, our disagreements about, about life and, and, and about other things, Lord, we would know that the one thing we have in common is Jesus Christ. And Father, that we would continue to hold out His grace to one another because we each here need Jesus today, again today, and tomorrow and the next day. Father, uh, we thank You for this union with Christ. We pray that You would continue to grow us uh, in our union with Him and grow us in our communion together with Jesus. Father, that we would love each other more and more, continue to hold out more and more grace continue to point each other more and more toward Jesus. And Father, that we would be propelled out into the world to hold out this gospel of grace uh, to those who are opposed to it. Lord, uh, that we would hold out this gospel of grace, that you would do a mighty work in it, and that we would get to be a part of it. We pray this in Christ's name, and we pray it for his glory. Amen.